listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Father, we just come to, I guess, attention. We recognise that you are here, your presence is here, your spirit is moving. And we thank you, Father, that you don't just move in this place, that you've been moving in us all today. You've been calling out and seeking us all our lives. So I just pray that as we open your word now, that you will draw us closer, that your spirit will speak through this word, that it will sharpen us, that it will give us greater insight into what you're doing. We pray, Father, that the lens of flesh through which we look at things often, Father, that that just drops off. And instead now, we come into clarity about what you're doing. So speak to us. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, good to be here. I think it's the first time I've spoken in the 5 p.m. this year. And I'll actually be doing um, the next three weeks. And then in four weeks' time, uh, Josh Butler will be coming to speak. And we're sort of doing a a little series, which is part of a bigger year-long series. And the theme for this year is more than me. More than me. You, if you've seen our slide, if you've seen the A-frames as you've walked uh, uh, into church today, you see that More Than Me is, in a sense, our tagline, and it's bigger than actual our name of our church. And More Than Me is a name that, or a tagline that came to us a little while ago. But before I get to that story, um, it's a little bit of a, an anniversary for myself, really, Um, in that this month, it's 10 years um, since I became the senior leader of RED. And that's a really interesting sort of bracket to realize, like, first of all, like, wow, that decade went quickly. But more than anything, it's Michael Chang, the um, tennis player, once said of a match he watched, he said, I've watched the videotape numerous times, and I can't figure out for the life of me how I won that match. And I feel like this is red. Uh, I took over red at a time when you don't want to take over a church, a church that had been going for some time, which had been at a height when I arrived there, just as a junior guy in my early 20s, uh, and uh, saw this church go through a whole bunch of change, set off on a very ambitious um, path, But really, that ambitious path hadn't been matched with what happened in reality. And so, I took over a church which had sold its building, split into four congregations around Melbourne, north, east, south, west. I'd started the east one, north had stopped, west had stopped. The whole church, including the two congregations left, which was south and east, was probably about 30 people split between them. East would have had about 20 people, maybe 25 on a big Sunday. And we'd be like, oh my goodness, there's so many people here. There's like 25 people. Now we have more than that for like pre-service prayer, double that sometimes. And there was about 10 or 12 people on a good Sunday in St. Kilda. And so it would have been a lot easier to take over a church which had just been planted 
There's a sense of energy about that. But this was a church where energy was going the opposite direction. And so took over, Sarah came on board, and I think the first year was just a year of confusion. What on earth had happened and what on earth were we doing? We came up with a brilliant, brilliant strategy to describe ourselves. So I'm going to introduce you into a secret of red of our tagline, Before More Than Me. Now, at that time, there's all these different names going around church. There was missional churches, emerging churches, seeker-sensitive churches. So we came up with the incredibly audacious subtitle, Red, a church. <laughs> so the original tagline was simply this, like, Red, it's a church. And people were like, what's sort a of church? We're a church. We're just a church. And we went on this journey where after... God sort of showing us that we needed to rebuild all this stuff that we deconstructed. We had gotten rid of worship, we had gotten rid of sermons, we were meeting at cafe, and we'd gone on this journey to try and sort of take the message of Jesus out into the marketplace, but in a sense had just completely only, you know, fallen apart in many ways. And then this journey began in 2010 where God began to rebuild us. And a whole bunch of different things happened. But this tagline, more than me, came at this point. And really, it's been the tagline which keeps on giving. It captures a sense of the gospel, that there's more than me in the world, that God is bigger. So that's going to be the theme this year, more than me. And we're going to look at it through lots of different angles. So I want to begin by doing this looking at a particular passage that God has had me in. I actually spoke on this passage um, at the end of last year, but I want to look at it again. It's on page 851. If you have the Bibles in front of you, uh, they should be under your seats. And we're going to look at 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. This is Peter who Jesus said, I will build my church upon you. He'd gone on this tremendous transformation where he's a very different person when we encounter him at this stage than we encounter him in the Gospels. And he's talking to the church as it's growing in its infancy around the Roman world at that time. And he says this, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. You, talking to the church, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Other translations there have temple. To be a holy priesthood. This concept of a group of people who in Israel were operating at that time in the temple, but it was a very elite group. These were people who were actually born into this. And he's using this description to talk of the church. This is, almost wouldn't make sense to people at the time. They knew who the priesthood was. And so he's reframing this concept of the priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices, not offering the sacrifices that people normally offer, grain or animals, but spiritual sacrifices 
acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, to look at what this means, I want to sort of take us on a big picture overview. See, to understand more than me, we need to understand that God is doing something bigger in our world and in your life than you understand. God's imagination is much bigger than the imagination you have for yourself and how you understand yourself and how you understand your own identity. So to do this, I have come up with some illustrations done in keynote. Not that good, but done in keynote. See, the story of Scripture begins with this image in the book of Genesis of humans living with God, of the divine dwelling with the human, with heaven and earth coexisting. God dwells in the world. God has created humans. He's created the world. And in this space, heaven which sometimes we think about as the place we go when we die. But in the scriptural understanding is much more than that. It's this place where God's will is done in fullness. It's where God's presence fully dwells. And in the Garden of Eden, we find God's spirit fully dwelling. Now, God gives humans who represent the earth. Adam actually comes from earth. He gives them a mandate. And history will be, the end of history, will be heaven and earth united. They're to go forth from Eden into the world, carrying that mandate with them as they till the soil and take God with them, that God's glory and heaven will go to the ends of the earth. That is the task that God gives his people as stewards. But those of you who have read Genesis understand that this story takes a turn. Into the garden comes a snake and asks a dangerous question of Adam and Eve. What if you were to try another route? What if you were to act like God's, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And this causes this split in the world. Heaven is where God's will is done in fullness, but now humans are doing their own will. So heaven and earth is torn asunder at this point. This is what we call the fall. What we call sin is humans choosing to do their own will and rebelling against God's divine order and his will. And this tears apart the world. And what you notice that humans then have this longing, this frustration within them. Different cultures respond to this differently. Some cultures, the answer to this tearing apart of heaven and earth is just to get lost in the heavenly. At the moment, in India, is one of the biggest gatherings on earth. I think it's the biggest gathering of humans on earth. Tens of millions of people turn up to a place where they go and throw themselves into the Ganges River. Many of them holy men who have renounced anything earthly. Their hair dreadlocked from not washing, naked, running into this sea, this river rather, in this sense to say goodbye to the material world. Many of the traditions of the East have this sense that 
in order to find spiritual enlightenment or nirvana, we need to have less to do with the world, to not hold it, to actually push away. Buddha said that desire is the root of evil. We're not to desire anything of the world. And so, there are all kinds of philosophies where the answer is just to become completely heavenly, to have nothing to do with the world, to not value it, to run from it. Many traditions have the idea that a man, when his children grow up, will actually leave his wife and family and go into the mountains to seek enlightenment and leave the world behind. Now, there are people who believe that in Australian culture, but the dominant story in Australian culture, in the story of Melbourne, in the story of the West, is actually the opposite. For the other philosophies who want to write heaven off, this sense that there is a spiritual other reality, to cut it off and to actually instead completely focus upon the earth, to see nothing spiritual in the world, that there's nothing transcendent beyond us, that there's nothing bigger than who we are. Ronald Rollheiser describes it in this way, talking about this view of just earth in the West. Reality has been stripped of its mystique, rendered familiar, and seen to possess no dimensions before which human beings must show reverence and respect. What is there? There's nothing but stuff. There's nothing bigger. So let's just try and squeeze out of this world all that we can enjoy. This story is everywhere. It's woven into teaching and education. It's woven into our economy. It's woven into how we act and how we think that there's nothing bigger. Yet the whole time, this longing for something greater, this longing. So we try and squeeze out of things which are material an imminent, a sense of the bigger, the spiritual and the transcendent. Into this dilemma God begins to call a people. He begins to traverse heaven and earth. We see in the scriptures the story of Jacob who sees this ladder between heaven and earth, angels going up and down. God begins to make these appearances. He calls a people and begins to shape them, Israel. He wants them to be an example of heaven on earth. Yet in their own strength, they can't actually do this. And they end up acting more like earth than heaven. So God's answer is to do something incredible. God himself leaves behind the glories and the riches of his heavenly realm and comes down to earth, incarnates into the body of a Jewish man 2,000 years ago. And in that human form is an overlap of heaven and earth, God and man, the incarnation in one person. The cost that has been spewed across the world of sin and rebellion and evil and brokenness, humans are not asked to pay that price. God in human form, Jesus on the cross, takes that upon himself. And so the dividing line in history is actually Jesus' death on the cross. And heaven and earth separate all of a sudden begin a different trajectory. When Jesus gets up after spending his life in hiddenness, after going into the wilderness and comes into the synagogue at the beginning of Luke's gospel, he reads from the book of Isaiah 
and declares that the Lord's favor is here. Something has now changed in the world. His death on the cross seals the deal, and his resurrection from the tomb points to a new reality. Jesus, having come down to the world, ascends to the right hand of the Father in heaven. And the new trajectory of the world is that heaven and earth are now moving together. That the great dream of humanity, that heaven and earth would be reunited, that the world would be redeemed, that every tear would be wiped away, that history is still moving towards that point. And now is this new reality that Jesus preached of, his parables, the stories he told, that he had to tell in these pictorial ideas because it was so radical for people, was that there was this new zone in which to live. He called it a kingdom or the reign of God, and that zone is where heaven and earth overlap. So, we are called to live in this space where heaven and earth overlap. But for us, this is difficult because we live at a time, as I stated, where earth, a focus upon only earth, doesn't exist just outside the church, but it exists within the church. That every week, we get a chance to give a teaching here, an attempt to shape people and go against all of the different formation devices in our culture which teach of you the story that is just earth. The Christians today find themselves believing, maybe not intellectually, in atheism. We may hold to the fact that we believe that this story is the true story. But Rollheiser says, following on from the quote I just read, that many Christians maybe not intellectually live with atheism, but live with a practical atheism. We don't intellectually believe it, but we act like it, and we believe that all there is is experience, so we have to grab everything. And this leads me to where I think we are now, both at Red in its history and really interestingly, I think something God's doing wider in the church at the moment. A few weeks ago, I was having a talk with a friend, and his church has been on a very similar trajectory to Red. We often talk because our churches are quite the same. We both building our churches at a similar time in similar type cities, and we realize that if you build a church today with biblical preaching that's orthodox but engaging and you, you talk about the Bible but then you relate it to culture, you reference a Netflix series, tie it back to the book of Isaiah, if you have like good worship, if you have good fonts and good design and nice photos on your PowerPoint keynote presentation, maybe have a justice project some community events at a place with burgers nearby. That people come. And church will grow. And my friend said this really interesting question to me. He said, what if we've been looking down at other churches 
and going, they're filled with people who are cultural Christians and they just go because of a sense of tradition. But what if the danger is how we're doing church is that we create another kind of cultural Christian who's looking for this line where they understand that there is the earth and everything it offers. They understand that there is heaven and what God is calling us to. But these kind of people are looking for a space to stand as close to this line as possible. I believe in Jesus, but I want the me. I want to submit some, but not fully, because I still want the me. And maybe I don't want to straddle two words, worlds, but my foot's getting pretty darn close to that line. And maybe sometimes it goes here. And maybe sometimes it goes here. And the danger is, as we had this chat, the realization that what if we've actually created churches which enable people to get as close to the earth as possible with a foot in the reassurance of heaven? And what if this is just a cooler kind of cultural Christianity where people aren't transformed, where people don't change, where the Holy Spirit doesn't come with power, which kinds of churches which are just going to hold on and survive until the inevitable happens. I believe God has us in this verse. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, Because what we're being invited to is not to get to as close to that line as possible, but actually to the space in between heaven and earth where they both overlap. And this concept of the church as a temple and disciples and followers of Jesus as priests doesn't try and get to this compromise point. It takes it to another level. It raises the bar and it invites us into something bigger. For N.T. Wright, or Tom Wright, says, what is a temple after all? Temples were built to hold together the divine realm, heaven, and the human realm, earth. We can think about church, what I get out of it, what we like about it. But actually, church, as Peter is talking about it here, as this temple, this spiritual house, is actually a place where we're called to hold together heaven and earth. And what we were just doing as we sung and praised God was standing in the place between those two worlds, standing in this zone where God's rule and reign is breaking out. That when you choose to worship, and you allow your cares and what you want to drop to the ground, and we open our focus to God, that we're standing in that overlapping space. Well, what about priesthood? It's such a weird concept, priests. There's this Old Testament concept of the priesthood, these guys who would put these offerings on the altars. What a bizarre metaphor to apply to people who are Christians. 
Jesus is rocking around out there. He seems to not be part of the priesthood. He's doing his own thing. He's more of a hippie. We like that idea more than we like some guy in some bizarre clothes burning stuff on an altar. William Propp says this. Priest is a mediator. Priest is a bridge builder, a bridge maker. Priests and being invited into that sense of being a bridge maker means that you as a Christian are invited. If you call yourself a Christian, if you're here exploring, that's fine. But being a Christian, what that means is being someone who is a bridge maker between heaven and earth. You'd have to do it in your own strength because God's already doing it in the world. That you're called to, in the spaces in which you habit, inhabit, to actually build bridges between heaven and earth. That that can be your workplace, your home, your friendships, your relationships, your inner life. That can be your discipleship group, your triad. We need to change how we see these things and see these things as this building a bridge between heaven and earth. When we do that, we join in God's plan to redeem the world. Peter is referring to an earlier passage. You don't have to turn there, but I want to read it. He's referring to Exodus 19. This bounces off this. When Moses goes on a mountain, and at the top of this mountain, it is a meeting place of heaven and earth. It's, a, it's an earthly mountain, yet on top of it is God's glory. There's clouds and lightning, and God's presence is there. And in Exodus verse 19, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 19, verse 3, it says this. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. So the first part of understanding this and how we get into that overlap of heaven and earth is that God is the one who calls you to that place. You can't do it in your own strength. You can't bring your own salvation. God's message of grace comes to you and brings you to this place. And there are people in this room who are here today because you've been brought to a place. Your friends may be going in a different direction. God is doing something in your life. And you are here because God is calling you. It's an invitation. Verse 5. He goes on. God, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. All through, Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Here's the same invitation, to be this holy house of God, to be this royal priesthood. But there's a second invitation. God comes with an invitation to follow him But then there's this second response. Our invitation is obedience. Our invitation is to respond by allowing heaven to come into all of the places in our lives. And at a moment when the culture 
can seem to be completely buying into the earth and forming us, our response can be one of retreat, compromise with the world, or just go to all heaven and escape. The psychologist Tully Chereau says that when we're faced by a situation stressful like that, we tend to go into a response. Our brain goes into this safety response when we're faced with stress and anxiety and threats. And a moment like this in the church, the church can respond with just this response. Until about two years ago, I felt that what God was asking Red to do was at this time when we were secularizing, was just to try and create a little fortress if we could. And if we could just hold on to 50% of the people and keep 50% of the people in their faith, that would be what God wants us to do, that we were to play defense. But I want to talk about what I think God's inviting us into. And to do so, I want to tell a story to end this sermon and I'm going to break a rule that I came up with a few years ago that you may have not been here. I've already broken it once, and that was I'm not going to tell sports stories in my sermons. Well, I did it last year, and another one is coming. And I want to take you back to the golden age of tennis, to 1989. And this is a sports story that is not just an analogy. This is actually a sports story that happens at a major televised sporting event, the French Open, Roland Garros, 1989, where the actual Holy Spirit turns up in the middle of a match. In the semi-final of the French Open, 1989, there was an unlikely matchup. And it was an unlikely matchup because of one of the participants. The other person who was in the semi-final was at that time a man who was just simply a machine. He was from the Czech or Czechoslovakia at that time. He was Czech. His name was Ivan Lendl. And I remember him when I was young, and the guy was just like, he'd just come out of a factory or something in, in Czechoslovakia. They just had made him, and he just was this machine. He had no emotion. He was like the Terminator, and he just kept coming and winning, and he was just like this six-foot-two just beast who just was strange. He had no emotion. He had these, like, these, like, cheekbones you could shave ice on and he just kept winning and winning and winning and you'd always hope he would lose and he would like barely ever lose. The weirdest thing was he always had sawdust in his pockets and apparently when they came to the Australian Open they had to find him sawdust because you can't take sawdust on the plane. So I don't know, someone went down to Bunnings or something, it's like a quick shave it off, yeah, that's good, yes. And he would have it so every time he'd serve so they'd always have to be like sweeping off this sawdust. Not human, God was not human. Favorite to win. He is up against one of the youngest competitors in that year's majors. A young American called Michael Chang. Michael Chang was the opposite of Ivan Lindell. Ivan Lindell was a machine, six foot two, big frame. Michael Chang was this tiny, skinny little guy at a time when there weren't many Asian tennis players. He was 17, just a kid. Now, he played Lendl only a few months earlier, and Lendl had just absolutely wiped the court with him. But something strange begins to happen in this match, 
And for some reason, Chang is able to match Lendl and keep the match alive into the fifth set. But the problem is, as I said, Lendl's not human. He's just like a robot. I mean, he's got pistons. He doesn't have muscles. He just keeps going. But Chang's body is just like falling apart. He's absolutely troubled with cramps to the point, and I remember this as a kid, he couldn't even, when there was change events, he couldn't even sit down. He literally had to stand up because he had such terrible cramps in his legs and back. And I remember this is where this match was burnt in my mind as a young man, that, a young kid really, that he, he was eating bananas during the game. So this wasn't normal. You had like a robot versus this very weak, ordinary person who's eating bananas who can barely go on. Now, at this point, Chang's mind went to where almost all of our minds would go. There's a psychological phenomenon, as I just shared, as Telly Sherot shared, and she uses Chang as an example in her book, that when you are, as a human, threatened in a moment like that, where you're exhausted, where you feel like you're facing this impossible challenge, your mind goes to safety. You go to safety. So, Michael's Chang's mind went to safety. He says this. The fifth set, I was dealing with the cramps that were fairly severe at certain points. If I were to slide really hard to go, or, I think it's all go up, really hard for a shot. When it was 2-1, I thought about quitting. I thought, it wouldn't be so bad. I'd get a lot of pats on the back in the locker room and press would say, great valiant effort, but bad luck that you lost. And I thought, you know, it wouldn't be such a bad thing. I mean, I wasn't supposed to win under those circumstances anyway. Understandable. You're a skinny little kid up against a Czechoslovakian robot. You're not meant to win. You've done really well. You're exhausted. You can't even physically make it. I think this is where Red was. There was a stage when there were so many things coming against Red. I, I can't even tell you. I would sit with people and I'd go, but how's it going? And you would explain everything that's happening, both personally and corporately. At many times, not just for like once or twice in those 10 years, but continually, continually. I would sit with people and go, what's going on? I'd tell them and their just jaws would drop. I won't even try and tell you some of them now because it would just be a sermon in of itself. And so I think for a lot of Red's life, even when we're growing and doing well, even until a couple of years ago, it was this sense that we're Michael Chang. Like, yeah, i got cramps, give us bananas. We're just going to like just create our little fortress of Christianity here. Maybe 50% of people won't walk away and that's okay. I even wrote a book called Disappearing Church. And the subtitle for that was from relevant, so we're not going to try and be relevant, that's not answering, to resilience, that sense of just standing in the face of a giant tsunami wave. Now what's interesting, what I haven't told you, is that Michael Chang was a believer. And not just a believer in like, yeah, I'll pull in the Jesus t-shirt when I win, but a devoted, deeply spiritual follower of Jesus Christ. 
And I've read this story a number of times in different secular sources. And what's so interesting is they leave the really key bits out. And that's the turning up of the Holy Spirit at the French Open. So I actually started walking towards the chair, Chang says, chair umpire. And I got about to the service line and the Spirit just totally convicted me. It was interesting because the first thought I had that came to my mind was, Michael, what are you doing? And I thought to myself, well, I'm going to default this match. Now, interesting, just note this. This could be a little insight into how God speaks to people throughout history. Often when the Holy Spirit is talking to you, your mind will be a counter voice. And your flesh and what you know and safety and comfort will come and say, hey, what are you doing? So the Spirit convicted me. Convicted is that sense that if you've had it from the Holy Spirit where it's just heavy and it's hard, but it's right and freeing all at the same time. The Spirit convicted me by saying, Michael, you've got to understand that the winning and the losing has never been your job to take care of. The winning and losing has always been God's job to take care of. But your job has always been to go out there and to compete and give 100%. It's not our job to grow red. It's not my job, it's not your job. It's not your job to grow your life. It's not your job to make your life happen. This is what more than me means. There is an energy source in the universe greater than you. And this moment comes at Roland Garros in the fifth set, 1989 French Open, where Michael Chang, like so many people at different stages and maybe not with the television audience that he had at that time, where the invitation comes. God has come to him, God has given him the talent, but God is inviting him to respond in a way of obedience. Now he could have just gone, okay, that's just a thought in my head, I'm not gonna go with it, I'm just gonna go to the dressing rooms and everyone's gonna pat me on the back and I'll finally get a massage and it'll be a-okay. But you live in that space between heaven and earth when you say yes to the invitation, when you go the different way, where you disobey your own flesh, where you disobey the crowd, and you say yes to what he's doing, and that's when we get to live in this zone between heaven and earth. Now, what's really interesting is Chang later on realized what was happening. The night before, Chang had been watching the coverage on CNN of what was happening in the wider world. As communism was falling across Eastern Europe, a peace movement, democratic students, began in China. A group of democratic students in Tiananmen Square had gathered, just as they had all across the world in communist countries at that time, demanding for democracy. Now, that movement in most of the countries around the world would see those countries no longer be communist as the people took power and democracy took hold. But what had happened in China is that different divisions from outside the capital were brought in by the Communist Party leadership and the protesters were massacred. Chang later realized that what was going on, this was not so that Michael Chang could be an awesome player and defeat Ivan Lindy. That at that moment, 
what God was doing through the life of Michael Chang. Michael Chang said, God was using me and the Spirit was using me at an incredibly dark time for Chinese people across the world to actually show them a different story. Again, this is more than me. Your life is not just about your little plot line of what you want to do and your personal pleasure and what you want to achieve. That actually, God is doing something bigger through our lives. More than me means that we're part of God's great project and we only get to find meaning when we give up our human-driven plans of finding meaning. So Chang heads back and he has this incredible moment. Remember, Telesharo says that at those moments, our brain goes, play it safe. Now, weirdly, what Chiro says, reviewing this match as a secular psychologist, is that Chang completely reframes what's going on in the match. Which is half right and half wrong. Yes, he does reframe, but he doesn't reframe. The Holy Spirit reframes what happens. So he realizes that. He's got virtually no strength yet left to do an overhead serve. So he does something absolutely bizarre. He does an underarm serve like a 12-year-old who's never played tennis before, who's just gone onto the court for a first time. And he realized, I, I can't, what's the point? I've got nothing to lose here. This is no longer about me doing it. The Holy Spirit's taken over. So I'm just going to do it. It's you can watch it on YouTube. Not now. <laughs> like, when you go home. Not during the next song. Like, we'll have a response time. No one's like, <laughs> communion. YouTube. It's on YouTube. And it's just amazing because he realized, I can't throw it up. He's like, people are going to laugh at me. He just doesn't care. He literally does this serve. And Ivan Lendl is so thrown, he fails to return it. And the crowd, there's just people in the crowd just holding their heads, just laughing out loud. He then begins to do bizarre things. So like, normally you stand behind the line for, to return serve, and he just starts walking towards Ivan Lendl like this. Like, he just doesn't care anymore. He's then this bits where it's literally like a comedy match, and the crowd is laughing, and he's just hitting returns. Like, he's hardly trying, just hitting them up high. He's just trying absolutely anything. Because in those moments when you're under threat, that is not the time to play it safe. And when you live in the place where heaven and earth overlap, that's not always a safe place. Because you're not looking for human safety. You're actually looking for the safety of God, which looks very different to the world. Chang wins the match, winning the final against Stefan Edberg. Now, he doesn't go on to become an incredible tennis player. It's the only major he ever wins. And maybe that was all about not him being some great pro, but actually what God wanted to do at that moment. And maybe it was exactly what he said. There was actually for the Chinese people in the world that it was just a moment to put a smile on their face where God was sending them a message. Even in his acceptance speech at the final, he said in front of a French crowd deeply invested in the French concept of laissez or secularism, he said, I want to thank Jesus. Booze right down. For five years after, the French people would just boo him every time he played. So this is not something which got him the accolades of the world. But it shows us that God asks us and invites us to step out of our will into his will. More than me is choosing this life where we inhabit this incredible 
paradoxical place between heaven and earth. And each of us, maybe our thing is a tennis, but each of you is a human being who can ask heaven into those moments of finding where heaven and earth are already overlapping and getting close there, of seeking out those places. Now, I'm going to talk about this over the next couple of weeks in more details. I was amazed as I talked to Josh Butler about what he's going to speak about and the intersections with this idea that he's going to speak about in three weeks. But what I want to say is this. I believe God is moving the church beyond just a kind of church where we try and get as close to the line as possible. We can be a Christian and culturally relevant and still be in the world. He's actually asking us to something new, to be living temples where actually we inhabit this space where heaven and earth overlap. He's calling you to be a bridge maker between heaven and earth. The time of just sending out this bland, beige message to people that come and be a Christian, we can be cool too, is over. He's calling the hungry. He's calling the people formed in hiddenness. He's building something new of those who are seeking, those who long for something greater, those who maybe are misunderstood and maybe booed by the Roland Garros crowd of your world. He's calling people who want to step into something bigger regardless of the cost. He's calling people who feel that sense in the pit of their stomach that they've been called out of safety into something greater. And he's calling you to make your underarm serve. What is your underarm serve? Maybe you've never fasted before and God's actually just got you on fasting. I've had this bizarre conversation with multiple, particularly young people in the last few weeks, people not at red from different places around the world who disconnected from each other are being asked into serious fasts. I've met a number of people who said, oh, there's nothing wrong with TV, Mark, but actually, I've just been told by God, don't watch TV for a year. Other people have said, I, I, one guy has said to me, Mark, there's nothing wrong with social media, but God said to me, I want to take you into a digital desert where the time you spend on social media, you now spend with me. I've spoken to three guys who say, oh, I know there's nothing sinful about drinking alcohol, but it's so bizarre. God is asking me not to drink alcohol, and here I'm right. I'm not saying that's sinful. Hear me right. Jesus drank. But that God is asking them, and not to tell anyone, because then they feel that they won't fit in. Why is God making me feel like I'm not going to fit in? Because he's teaching me something. And there is this moment we are approaching where, instead of lowering the bar, which we've been doing for the last 20 years, is now time to raise the bar, because God actually wants to create, whatever age you are, a breakthrough generation at this time, formed in a voluntary hiddenness, a base of operations built in deepness. He's wanting to build something from a time where we really explore what it is to live more than me. And not just to create church services where heaven and earth overlap, but actually to create churches where we come here and be filled up with heaven, where heaven and earth overlap so that we can go out and take heaven wherever we're placed. Because that's God's plan, to send his glory into the world. So what I'm going to do now, let's, let's stand. When we worship, we're focusing our minds on God. What we need to do is, 
We need to move beyond this vision that's constantly given to us, this set of glasses that we've inherited from our culture to just see simply the earth. We need to ask God to actually put new glasses on us. So I'm going to ask the band to come forward. And normally at this time we take communion, but what I want to do is I just want to actually get us to spend this first song simply focusing upon God's eyes. So Holy Spirit, come. Help us to see your view of the world. Help us to see heaven. And not heaven which takes us away from this world. We know that you're sending us into this world, but to have a heavenly viewpoint, to see the eternal in the temporal, to see the supernatural in the material, to see the transcendent in the imminent, to see your fingerprints in a world which says you don't exist, to see your presence in a world which laments your absence. Holy Spirit, as we worship now, may our focus be upon you, our minds renewed, our inner person transformed. Quicken, awaken us. So let's just sing this. Let's just sing this and focus on him. I'll get up in a second. We'll do communion and prayer and all that stuff. But let's bring heaven down to earth.